Welcome to the Central Baptist Church podcast. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. I'd like to invite you to join me in scripture reading at this time. I'm going to read from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and then I'm going to read Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7, just a very short reading. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Well, if you're new to Central, if you're joining us online, if you are maybe new here this morning, welcome. We are beginning a new series. We've begun a new series. Uh, I think we're on about part four right now. And we're calling this series The Story That Makes Sense of Our Stories. Here's the really quick basic idea. We've been saying that we've all been born into a giant story, the story of this universe. And as human beings, we're always trying to figure out what is this giant story from where did the whole universe come from right down to what does it mean to be a human being. But what's frustrating for us is that there are many different stories that people tell to try to make sense of this big story of where the universe came from or what it means to be a human being. So Christians, for instance, within our story say there is only one God. Hindus, within their story, say there are many gods, and of course, atheists, within their story, say there, is no, there are no gods at all. And so we're, we're trying to figure out this all. We're trying to make sense of this giant story that we find ourselves in. And so what we're doing in this series is we're comparing and contrasting stories that people tell and stories people believe. And we're comparing and contrasting those with the Bible story, what we call the Judeo-Christian story, specifically... In Genesis chapters 1 to 3, which form the foundation of the entire story. So today now, I want us to begin looking at human beings. We've been looking at the purpose of the universe, of beauty, all these kind of things. Today, I want to look at what are human beings, and more specifically, the topic of human significance. We all believe that to be human is to have significance, that you and I are significant. We all believe that. We all believe that human beings have value, we have dignity, and we have worth. You know this because we expect each other, you expect others to treat you properly, and you will condemn, and we always do this, we would condemn behaviors where somebody might put down a child and say they are worthless. We would condemn that kind of behavior because we'd say that child has significance, worth, value. We would condemn behaviors where people would say, put others down because of the color of their skin. We'd say that goes against the significance and the value of a human being. So, do you believe that human beings have value, dignity, and worth? Do you believe that? I assume you do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with that assumption this morning 
really hoping that you do, and I'm assuming that you do, but here's the thing that I want you to ask yourself. Why do you believe that? What is it about human beings that gives us value and dignity and worth? What is it that makes us significance? What is the story that you believe about what it means to be human that backs up this idea that I think we all agree on, that as human beings we have value, dignity, and worth? we got to be able to answer that question because it affects every area of our lives. Uh, from how we raise children, to how women get treated, to human rights, and all these issues right across the globe. So today, here's the question I want to ask. What story makes the best sense of our belief that human beings have value, dignity, and worth? And what I want to do today is to contrast, compare and contrast four stories. The four stories are the ancient religious story, the modern scientific story, the Western individualistic story, and then the forgotten Genesis story. So it'll take us a little bit to get to Genesis, but I hope that by the time we get there, we'll have a good picture and we'll be able to dig into it together, all right? So you want to talk about human beings? This is kind of part one. Two weeks from now, I'm going to talk about human rights. That'll be part two. But let's get talking about what is a human being and what gives us value. Let's start then by looking at the ancient religious story. The ancient religious story. In many, even most ancient religions, the universe was created and came into the existence for the sake of the gods, not the sake of human beings, for the sake of the gods. A common ancient story was that the gods then kind of got tired of working and having to provide for themselves because most ancient gods had to eat, and so they had to work hard, they had to do all this, and they got really sick and tired of this, and so the gods then created human beings as slaves to, to produce food for them so that they could just rest and relax. In other words, within that kind of a story, human beings are an afterthought, an afterthought, and we were made as slave labor for gods. And for most of ancient history, realize this, for most of ancient history, aside from the Jewish people, almost no one believed what you here, I assume, believe, that every human being has value, dignity, and worth. This was particularly true for slaves and women. Since the gods made us to be slaves, you can see if that's the story that you believe, it then makes perfect sense that you would not only believe in slavery, but that you would practice it and think it's perfectly normal and acceptable. So, for instance, the philosopher Aristotle, very famous man in history, lived a few hundred years before Christ. Here is what he said. Slaves and brute animals cannot form a state. You can't be citizens and create your own country. For Why? They have no share in the happiness or in a life of free choice. No share in happiness or in a life of free choice. You're a slave. That's what you were born. That's what you are. You cannot be a citizen. And it was just as bad or worse even for women. For instance, you might know the, kind of some of the Greek mythology, the Greek stories of where the universe came from, where human beings came from. And originally, the gods created men, not women, but men, but then Prometheus, that mean name might ring a bell, he went and he stole fire from the gods and he brought it back to humanity or to the men because he, then he became the hero of men because he stole fire from the gods and gave it to the men. And the gods got really ticked off about this and they decided to punish the men for what they had done. So what did they do to punish them? 
They created women. <laughs> so if you believe, wow, I, didn't, I don't believe this just for the record. <laughs> if you believe the story that women were created as a punishment to men, how do you think you're going to treat women? Listen to Aristotle again. Remember, a representative voice of the ancient world. The male is by nature superior, and the female inferior, and the one rules, and the other is ruled. I didn't hear any amens on that one, and I don't expect to. I am assuming that you, don't, you not only don't believe that, but that you are offended by that. But here's what I want to ask you, why? Why? What story do you believe that would have the grounds that could counter that? You can, I, of course, we're all going to say it just is. Women and men are equal. They just are. Okay, but what's the story that teaches you that? Because throughout the whole history of the world, aside from the Jewish people in the ancient world, people didn't believe that, and you're saying you believe it. So why? What is it? that changes your viewpoint. Well, let's turn away from the ancient story to some more modern stories that we believe and see what they say. In the second place, let's look at what I'm just going to call the modern scientific story. And I'm talking here about the story that probably most people would believe in our era. They would believe that modern science teaches us what it means to be human. And what is the story? The short answer, of course, is that we are a fortunate accident of evolutionary chance. It's fortunate that we're here. It's amazing that we're here. But really, at the end of the day, it is an accident of chance that we have arrived here. And of course, that story says there's no God. The universe came into existence at the Big Bang, and through a long process of evolution, human beings have eventually got to where we came into existence. So if that's the story, then what does that story teach us about what it means to be human? Are we significant? Do we have value within that story? Of course, people who would hold to the modern scientific story would say, of course we do. But does the story give grounds for that? It's difficult to see how. So let me quote a bunch of people who are they're not Christians at all, and here's how they wrestled with it. Let's go to the most famous 20th century philosopher and atheist, Bertrand Russell. This is a hard quote, but hopefully it'll make some sense of it. He said that man is the product of causes that had no prevision of the end they were achieving. So we're the product of some causes that didn't have our end goal in mind. They just were happening and we eventually got here. That our origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms. Everything that we are as human beings, just it's our atoms that have accidentally kind of eventually come together. And then he continues... That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius, all the accomplishments is what he's saying, all these are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. Take all that, he says, only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. That's very wordy. Here's what he's saying. If there's no God, 
and everything is eventually going to just end in the death of the solar system, and there was no purpose that got here in the first place, then the facts are the facts, and you must accept them. The fact are, there is no ultimate purpose to your life. Everything's going to end in death. This leads you to despair? Yes, it does. But Russell's saying, you got to face the facts. You might not like it, but this is what it is. And so you start, you got to build your life on what he calls the only firm foundation of unyielding despair. Because there's no hope if this is what the story is. Only then can we actually build up the human race. So to his credit, he's being consistent. He's saying the facts are the facts, and you may not like it, but we are accidents. We don't have any ultimate significance because everything's eventually going to end anyways. And now we got to start to build our lives based upon those facts. That's what the most famous atheist of the 20th century taught. Now that's quite wordy. Let me give you an even better theologian who might give a better perspective on this. Calvin. Not John Calvin. No, the great Calvin and Hobbes. Here's one of the great strips of all time. In the first little strip, Calvin's sitting up looking at the stars. He yells at the stars, I'm significant! Then he's looking up the stars again, and then the final panel he says, screamed the dust speck. That's a profound comic strip right there. We feel that we are significant. We all do. This is what I said at the beginning. I assume you believe it. I know you believe it. We believe that human beings are significant. But if there's no God, it's hard to see why we think that. We might be the top of the evolutionary chain or something like that. But do we really have value and purpose and all these kind of things? And what Calvin's experiencing there is he stares up into space, he realizes within the vastness of the universe, we're not even a speck of dust. And if we're even just a speck of dust, we're here today and we're blown away tomorrow. Samuel Beckett was a playwright. He wrote an interesting little play called Breath. This play is only 35 seconds long. It begins with a single spotlight illuminating a stage. And the stage is filled with all kinds of things from lamps and blankets. There's even a cement mixer and it's all kind of almost like a trash pile of things. And then as the play begins, as the lights come onto this stage, there's the sound. You don't see anybody, but there's the sound of inhaling air. You just hear, <sighs> and then there's nothing. As you're watching the stage just for a few seconds, there's a bit of a pause. And then there's the sound of somebody exhaling but it's kind of like the final breath before death. It's a, uh, as the final breath goes out of the body. And then all of a sudden, the play is over. What is Beckett saying? Beckett's saying with his play, if this is the story of the universe, then you may feel significant but really, there's nothing in that story that says you are. You're here for a few seconds. You make a bunch of stuff that ends up as trash, and then you're gone. So within this larger scientific story, it's hard to see why human beings have value, dignity, and worth. And we'll talk in a few weeks why we should have things like human rights. We assert them all the time. Yes, we do. And we certainly don't want to say that people that believe this story don't believe in human rights or don't think human beings have value. They do. But what, I, what I'm trying to press a little bit on what all these people are pressing on is saying, where do we get that from within this story? 
For instance, there was a young man who was uh, in med school, and he was doing his medical residency. He's doing the rounds with a group of other students, and they came into the psychiatric ward, and there was a man within this ward uh, who was depressed, he hated himself, and he was suicidal. When the med school students had finished seeing this patient, the doctor who was presiding over took them all aside and began to debrief the situation. What should we do with this patient? And one of the residents said, what we have to do is to show him that he's a valuable person. He's not trash. He's significant. He's valuable just because he's human. Do you know what the doctor said to the residents? He said, how do you know that? We're scientists. What scientific basis is there for saying that? So he's not that he's disagreeing, but he's pushing. He's pushing. He's doing good teaching style. Why? On what basis are you saying? What, where does science say that human beings are valuable, that we have worth, that we should treat each other with dignity? That's not what science teaches us. He was saying, yes, we all have this deep sense of significance, but science doesn't teach us that. So all these people that I'm just quoting to you, they're saying that although science can teach us a lot of things about the human body, amazing things, the modern scientific story can't make sense of the fact that we here in the 21st century, you, each, everyone in this room, where I assumed that we all believe that to be human is to have value and significance and worth. It's hard to see how you get that out of that story. And since no one can really face these facts because they're so harsh, as, Bill, as Bertrand Russell was saying, they're too cold, the facts are just too hard, we have created a new story within our culture in order to try and fit with this modern scientific story. So here's the third story, and this one you're going to get it right away when I start to talk about it. In the third, third place, let's talk about the Western individualist story. This is within our culture. The Western individualist story. So this story goes something like this. However we got here, whether it's through God creating us or whether it was through just a random evolutionary chance, we find ourselves by looking within. As human beings, we create our own significance by looking within ourselves and building up our own identity. Oh, yes, we might die in 80 years. Fine. But we will create our own sense of significance by looking inward at ourselves. Sound familiar? So there's a very famous sociologist named uh, Robert Bella. He wrote also a very famous book called Habits of the Heart. And he talks about how he and his team of researchers interviewed a woman whose views really represented so many people. And you'll, you'll kind of catch this. Here's the quote from the book. Sheila Larson is a young nurse who has received a good deal of therapy and describes her faith as Sheilaism. I believe in God, Sheila says. I'm not a religious fanatic. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long ways. It's Sheilaism, just my own little voice. Sheila's faith has some tenets beyond belief in God, though, though not many. In defining what she calls my own Sheilaism, she said... It's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess, take care of each other. I think God would want us to take care of each other. 
So this idea that we find significance not by looking outside of ourselves, but by looking inside of ourselves, this really is our new modern age, isn't it? This may include a belief in God, or it may not, uh, as long as whatever, whoever this God is kind of fits with my journey to discover who I am and to express myself fully. And the whole goal then is to find out who you are and to fully express yourself. That's how you find your sense of significance. No one else tells you what to do or what to believe, you make it up on your own. So this is right through all of our culture. This is one of our dominant narratives right now. You can even see it in our commercials. They want to tap into this. So there was a a commercial for a Jeep. It was a Jeep Renegade, one of the brands of Jeeps. And and the commercial was pretty incredible because it had all of these very famous young female pop stars standing around a Jeep Renegade, and they say things like, I have chosen to be unapologetically me. A renegade is someone who doesn't seek the approval of other people. And then another girl says, a renegade sets their own standard. And meanwhile, a line of text kind of goes along the bottom of the screen and it reads, be unique, be authentic. And of course, it's terribly ironic that being a renegade means being persuaded to buy a commercial, to buy a mass-marketed Jeep that millions of people are going to buy, but that, that's a whole other question. Uh, but that really drives home the point that this is even how commercials are now trying to sell things, is you've got to find your own sense of significance within yourself, and then you express it however you want to express it. And of course, there's some good sides to all this. It's not that it's all bad at all. Uh, Of course, we don't want to, there's lots of good things we could say about you do need to be who God made you to be and uh, these kind of things, but this narrative goes way beyond that. It sounds empowering, but it doesn't deliver on the promises that it makes. It can't give you that inner sense of identity that makes you feel significant. Why not? Because if you look within yourself to try to find your identity what, what do you find when you look in yourself? Well, you find there's lots of darkness. Is that what you're going to build your identity on? You're going to find all kinds of things. And here's the great problem. They're always shifting. They're always moving. It's like trying to hit a moving target. Or, or just think back to who you were when you were 20, if you're older than 20 right now. Do you really want to build your identity on who you thought you were when you were 20? Boy, if I would have done that. Oh, boy. <laughs> There'd be some things wrong. Sure, there's things I thought, this is who I am when I'm 20, and this is, you know, this is what makes me significant. I'm sure glad I didn't do that, because it's always shifting, always moving. So the result is, you never really find an identity, because it's always moving and shifting, and it's like that moving target you never seem to actually achieve, because we grow and we change. And so your whole identity, you're always in this perpetual identity crisis, always trying to find your new identity. But worse than this... All these things we try to find as an identity will eat us alive if they go inward. If, for instance, we look within and we say, I'm a significant person because I'm beautiful, we'll fall apart. Our identity will fall apart as we age. If we look within and we say, no, I'm a significant person because I'm successful in my career, I've made it, then we're always going to have the threat of failure coming, And then our whole identity has been built up our whole lives until we retire. And then who are we? We're not in this career anymore. Or if we look within ourselves and we say, I feel significant because others love me, then we'll always fear losing their love. 
and we'll always have to work to keep gaining their approval. We'll never be able to say anything we actually think, lest other people not like us, and we lose that sense of identity that we found in other people. So when we try to look within ourselves to build that sense of significance and value, we're dependent on things that are always moving, we can never nail them down, and things that will just eat us alive in the end. So once again, it's hard to see how we can find human significance and human value with the kind of Western individualistic story or the modern scientific story. Again, we all believe that we have significance and value and worth, but these stories don't provide the foundation that we need. They don't give us that direct stuff that says, oh yes, human beings are absolutely significant and valuable. They try to come at it from different ways, but they don't seem to give that foundation that we need. So let's turn in the final place then to consider one more story. Let's look at what now I'll call the forgotten Genesis story. The forgotten one. I'm saying it's forgotten because, as I'm going to show you in two weeks, our entire system of human rights, all your beliefs actually about human rights and about equality and all that, believe it or not, this all came from your Judeo-Christian heritage. This is not in the history of the world. And if you believe it, you're actually deeply in sync with the Christian story. Because other cultures don't hold to this, and the ancients didn't hold to this. It's the unique contribution of the Judeo-Christian story. But we're forgetting it now. So we'll go back to that in a few weeks. But let's come back to the forgotten story of Genesis. Because as I've said over the last few weeks, Genesis was not written in live time to narrate the events, right? It was written later claims to be inspired of God, but it's written for Israel and by wider extension the world. Why? To help them and to help us make sense of this giant story of the universe that we've all found ourselves in. That's why it's written. So Israel can understand its place and then by extension to the world. And then the Genesis story speaks very clearly to the questions of what is a human being and do human beings have any value or significance? And it emphatically denies that human beings are an afterthought, like the ancient religious story did, or that we're just an accident, like maybe the modern scientific story says. And it goes so much further to give you that rock-solid identity than anything that the Western individualistic story can give you. So let's refresh our memories and get right in on what is this Genesis story and what does it teach us about what it means to be human. I'm going to show you three things and we'll develop it more in two weeks. First of all, human beings are dust. Human beings are dust. When you read Genesis chapter 1, it shows you how God created everything and human beings within Genesis chapter 1 are part of the creation. We're not gods who stand above the creation. We are part of the creation. So Genesis 2, then we go on and we read these words. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. So this is already beginning to make some sense of our, our sense of what it means to be human. We do all in one way sense that we are actually really, really small. And this, this teaches us that, too, that we, we are dust, and this should humble us. We are not gods who stand above the creation. We are made from the dust, and one of the greatest examples of that we are not gods is that we 
must breathe just to stay alive. I saw a great little meme the other day. Uh, I didn't find it again, but here's what it actually said. You technically have two minutes to live, but every time you breathe, it restarts the timer. Just think on that for a moment. That is so true. You only got two minutes left. Maybe some of you scientists are saying, well, actually, it's five until the brain dies or ten. Okay, fine. You got to keep breathing is the point. That's how fragile, how small we are, that we are not gods who can control our own lives. In this sense, we are no different from the animals. We are part of the created order. We are dust. But secondly, the Genesis story goes on to say this. Human beings are divine. And I'll explain it. I don't mean God himself, but I'll explain this as we go along. Genesis 1 not only gives this humbled view that human beings are part of the created order, it gives an exalted view of what it means to be human. Notice that human beings in the Genesis story are the last thing that God creates. He creates everything else, forms the earth, fills the earth with all this kind of life, and then human beings are are created on the sixth day after everything else is formed and filled. But it's not that we're an afterthought, like in the ancient uh, religious stories. No. I think scholar Ian Provan puts it well when he writes this. Human beings were not made on the sixth day because we come late in God's thinking, when he was tired, but because we represent the high point of creation. The high point of creation. Genesis 1 and 2 declare that human beings are the crown of God's creation. We see this in all kinds of ways. With all the other parts of creation, God just simply says, let there be, and then he says, for instance, let there be light, and there is light. And it's just chop, chop, it's done. He says it, it happens. And yet, before he creates humanity, it's like there is a pause. And then it is like God, in verse 26, consults with himself, reflects upon this big moment that he's about to do for this last important step of creation. And then verse 26 says this, Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God's plan before he creates is to make human beings to be the, mark this, the kings and the queens of his creation, the earth specifically. It's their job as human beings to care for the earth. It's the home he's made, and it's their job to care as benevolent good kings and queens for the planet that he has given them. And then it's only after this careful deliberation is done that God then acts to create human beings. So verse 27 says this, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So, to recap, human beings then are the high point of God's work after careful deliberation and are made to be the kings and queens over the earth. But most important in all this is this little phrase, in the image of God. Did you hear how much that came up? Here it is again, just the little recap part. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Now listen carefully. No other creature in all of God's creation is created in the image of God. Not once do you read that 
in any of the other part of the creation story with the fish, with the creeping things, anything like that. Human beings alone are created in the image of God. And listen carefully in this ancient world where this text was written. Is it only men that are made in the image of God? What does it say at the bottom? Is it only males? Male and female, he created them. Revolutionary in the ancient world and so in touch with where we're at today. Both men and women, boys and girls, created in God's image. So do you realize what Genesis is saying then? Just think of it this way. The Bible is relentless in teaching that there is only one God. There are no other gods in the universe. The Bible is relentless in saying that nothing compares to this God. He is above and beyond his created order. He is the creator. There's an infinite chasm, and then there is the creation. He is in a class all by himself. And yet, to our amazement, here we read that God has placed little images of himself within the universe that he's, he has created. Those little images are human beings. Every single human being reflects their creator. They are made in the likeness of their creator. We are like God himself. In that sense, then, we are divine. We are not divine with a capital D. We are not God but we are like God. We are little images that God has placed of himself within his created order. King David was absolutely astounded by this because you know what this says? It says you have huge significance, huge value. You're an image bearer of your creator. Can you get more significance than that? significant than that? King David was blown away by this, this exalted status. And so in Psalm 8, which you heard and saw on the screen, He's out one night looking at the stars, as you sometimes do, and he says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. So at this point, you're like Calvin in the strip. You're looking up. You're like, I can't believe how big the heavens are. I can't believe how small I am. But then he goes on, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You see the contrast? We're dust. We're creatures. We're small. And you know, when you look up at those stars, and if you know anything about the universe, you know, truly I am not even a speck of dust. I am so, so small. And yet, whenever you think that as you're looking up at the stars, you've got to come back to this verse. Because the second half of it is saying, but God is mindful of his people. He cares for his people. Why? And, and Dave is just so amazed by this. Why would you do that? Why would you be so mindful and care for us who are so little? We all know what it's like to feel like Calvin and Calvin and Hobbes or staggered like King David. But that Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, if you want to put Psalm 8 into it, you're staring up at the heavens and you're just feeling, it would flip it around. It would say, I'm just a speck of dust. But then, rather than Calvin say, I'm significant, a voice from heaven comes down and says, you're significant. Your creator says you're significant. Why? Because he made you on purpose. And he didn't just make you on purpose. He made you like himself so that you are an image bearer of the creator. I love how the author and blogger Tim Challies puts it. He says this, 
We are very, very small, and we are very, very significant. Do you not think the Genesis story then is in perfect sync with your experience? Because on the one hand, we all know that we're so small, we're nothing more than a speck of dust. On the other hand, we also believe, as we said at the beginning, that we are all significant, that human beings have value, dignity, and worth. And the Genesis story makes perfect sense of both of these things. So when the doctor asks the med school residents how they can know that this man in the psychiatric ward has significance, the answer is, Genesis answers, this man is not trash. He is the special creation of God himself. He bears the image, the stamp of the creator, and so he has value. To our Western individualistic culture that longs for significance, the Genesis story says, don't look within yourself. You'll get confused and lost all over the place. No, look outside yourself to your creator. Listen to the voice of your creator, for your creator says, you bear my image, you're made on purpose, and you have value because I made you. Genesis declares that the universe is not an accident, you are not an accident, and every human being is the special creation of God himself. So this applies across the board to so many situations, to the, to the poor child maybe who has been scarred by a parent. I've heard, oh, I've sadly heard this so many times as a pastor. Scarred by a parent or by some adults who told the child they were worthless, they'd never amount to anything, and just abused them emotionally and psychologically like that. The Genesis story says... To that child, maybe that adult child with the child wounds, God says, you are of great worth and value in my eyes. When men treat women as inferior, God says, girls and women are my special creation, and they are equal in value and dignity and worth to boys and to men. And they ought to be treated that way. When people treat other people as less than human, simply because of the color of their skin, God says, all people, regardless of their skin color, are created in my image and are therefore image bearers. And the skin colors just show my great artistic design. They're all of worth. They're all of value. So within the Genesis story, you've got coherence, you've got make sense, and you've got a great cause for justice in the world, as we're going to see in two weeks. The Genesis story says that everyone, from the elderly person in the nursing home, to the unborn child in the womb, to the person struggling with their disability, whatever that may be, all of them have equality and should be treated with dignity and worth because every single one is stamped with the very image of the creator himself. We're dust, but we're also divine. It makes sense of both of these things. And here's the final thing to say. The Genesis story also says that human beings are destined for glory. Dust, divine, destined for glory. God commanded Adam and Eve to have children that would also bear his image, to fill the earth with these children, to create great culture and art, to all do it to God's glory. This was the original plan, to make earth a wonderful home. But clearly something went wrong along the way. 
That's what we're going to look at in quite a few more weeks from now, but we'll get there eventually in Genesis chapter 3. But of course, what we're going to see is that as human beings, we turned our back on our creator. We didn't want to represent him, show him his, uh, show his likeness. Rather, we wanted to be our own gods and to live for ourselves, to make up our own rules for how we want to live. And as a result, we brought sin, death, and destruction into our lives and into the, onto the planet. We don't treat each other well. We don't treat each other as we ought to, considering that the person sitting next to you is none other than an image bearer of the immortal God. But God did not abandon his plan. God had a plan to rescue his creation, to restore human beings to what he wants us to be. And that plan also had to do with one who is in the image of God. God's great plan was to send his son, his one, only eternal son, into this world in order to restore that which has been marred, which has been disfigured and broken within the image of God. Jesus is God's own eternal son. Here's what Hebrews 1 says of Jesus. It says the son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Colossians 2 says he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God and this eternal image of God put on human nature, put on human flesh, came down among us in order to die on the cross that we might be cleansed of all that sin, all the ways we've turned away from our creator, and then to be restored to become what we're always meant to be. It's, it's the great plan of renewal. It's the restoration plan We're all kind of like old houses that have fallen into disrepair, but God's great plan is to renovate our lives, to reshape us, reform us into true image bearers that reflect what we're supposed to reflect as human beings. That's why Jesus came. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 8, 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, In other words, God's great plan in sending his son is he wants to make us as human beings to be exactly like his son who is the image of the invisible God. And then, of course, this whole story continues. Once we become Christians and get on board with all of this, God does this in our lives for all the things that happens. And then the story ends finally when 1 John 3 comes true, which says, what we will be one day has not yet been made known. But we know that when he, Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Here's the Christian, Judeo-Christian story. God created us in his image. We've turned our backs. That image has been marred. But God is in the process of restoring it through his son, Jesus Christ. The whole universe is now headed in this direction where God is bringing people to himself, re-putting them into being the human beings we were always meant to be, and one day those human beings will dwell with their creator forever. That's the path of history. The question is, are we on board with history? Are we on the right side of history? Because that is exactly where history is going, and we do not want to be left out of it. So the question for each of us today is, have you given your life to Christ? Have you asked him to cleanse you of your sins, to forgive your sins, and to begin to shape you to be that human being that you were always meant to be, that human being who looks like Jesus himself? That's the call of the Judeo-Christian story. And the Judeo-Christian story has all the things to make sense of that deep sense that you have that all human beings are significant 
that we have value, dignity, and worth. And as we'll see in a few weeks, that makes a big impact on how we must treat one another. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for not abandoning us when we abandon you. Thank you for sending your Son, Jesus, you, the image of the invisible God, dwelt among us, put on a human flesh, became a man, in order that we might be cleansed, we might be remade, we might become a new creation. Thank you that you have come to restore us. So Jesus, continue to work out your good plan in our lives, for we want to be like you. You are the only truly perfect human being who's ever lived. Jesus, your grace, your patience, the way you spoke truth when it needed to be spoken, uh, your kindness, your forgiveness, all these things, we need them. We need them especially in this polarizing age of so much division. We want to be like you, Jesus, and we need you to shape us to be that way. So enable it. Work it in us, we pray. And we praise you, Father that you are mindful of us and that you've made us to be like yourself. We long for the day when we will be with you, perfected into the human beings we've always meant to be. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.